The following pre-recorded program is paid for by SSI Guardian. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg with your host, psychologist and author, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Living Well with Dr. Peg explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics brought to you by SSI Guardian. Living Well with Dr. Peg shares effective and practical psychological strategies based on biblical principles for living well and staying safe. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat. Visit drpegradio.com. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Hello, listeners. I'm blessed to be back with you for another episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, which is brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. And I'm coming to you from Denver, Colorado, and streaming around the world online and from your smartphones. If you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, be sure to go to drpegradio.com. For the program archives, and you can listen to a variety of topics ranging from mental health to managing your finances and making behavior changes. And if you have students who are preparing to graduate from high school or college, may I suggest you get them signed copies of my books, Do Something Different for a Change, and Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss, I Learned from My Dog, and both provide helpful guidance and inspiration for the graduate who's at the beginning of their new and exciting journey. Just go to drpegradio.com and click on books. Now, maybe you're the graduate, or perhaps you're changing careers, you just lost your job, or you've recently been retired, and you're not sure what's next, or perhaps you need clarity regarding the call on your life, or why you're stuck in a perpetual cycle of counterproductive behavior. If that's you, register now for my Do Something Different for a Change, Personal Transformation Retreat, coming up on Saturday, June 17th in Denver. And in this full-day VIP small group experience, you'll enjoy a time of refreshment, personal reflection, and strategic planning. And together we'll explore where you are, where you want to go, and identify what's holding you back. And I'll also help you to develop an individualized plan to accelerate your personal transformation and help you spring into your new season. And we're in a newly remodeled location, and it's fabulous, serene, and inviting. Space is limited, so go to drpegradio.com and click on Retreat to register now for the June 17th retreat or to schedule a clarity call to see how I can help you do something different for a change. And if you'd like to be a blessing and sponsor someone with limited resources to attend the retreat, contact me at drpegradio.com. Well, if you're a college student or the parent of a college student, you already know that May 1st is the deadline to make your deposit to secure your child's spot to attend college or university. But parents, before you make that payment, listen carefully to today's program. My guest is Robin Hattersley, and she's the executive editor of Campus Safety Magazine, the premier source for safety and security information for hospital, school, and college campuses. And it's a must-read for administrators, law enforcement, and other campus officials responsible for the safety and security of America's college students. And campus campus safety's readers have traditionally been security directors, police police chiefs, emergency managers, and other campus administrators. Uh, But I also want to encourage parents to check them out online as well. Uh, Robin is also the author of Parents' Guide to Keeping Your Child Safe at College, And she's going to share some helpful information 
for parents to determine if the school their child is going to is safe. Robin, Robin Hattersley, thank you so much for being with us today by phone, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Peggy. Great to be here. Wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time out. Such an important topic, and um, many students have already um, expressed their intent on where they're going to college, and some of them are returning for their sophomore year or maybe even their senior year, and they're getting ready to graduate. But it's always a good time for parents to know more about how safe their kids' campus is, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, in Campus Safety Magazine, um, you have helpful information for um, college administrators and faculty and staff and law enforcement, uh, but there's helpful information as well for parents. Um, what are some of the goals um, and, and how do you uh, access Campus Safety Magazine? Well, uh, we're a print publication, but we're also an online publication, and, and you can access us at campussafetymagazine.com. We also have a digital edition, uh, which is you can sign up for at campussafetymagazine.com, and it's absolutely free. Excellent. We, all, we always like free, don't we? Absolutely. <laughs> now, talk about your um, electronic uh, book, your e-book, called Parents' Guide to Keeping Your Child Safe at College. Uh, why did you write that guide? Well, as you know, and as you mentioned before, I mean, we traditionally go and talk to uh, campus police chiefs, security directors, uh, and about best practices. But every so often, and actually quite often, I get calls or emails from parents and sometimes students, um, but usually parents who found out about CampusSafetyMagazine.com, you know, online, and they reach out to me because their children are in trouble somehow. And a lot of times their children have been victims of sexual assault or some sort of uh, sexual violence, such as um, harassment, dating, violence, stalking, or maybe even hazing, and they want to know what to do. And I figured, well, you know, it would probably be better if they knew about this information before their kids got into trouble in the first place. And, you know, it's great um, for parents to know what are some of the questions that need to be asked uh, so that, um they, their children, and they can pick schools that are actually really safe. Mm-hmm. Also, um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of lists floating around out there, you know, claiming that to list the safest or most dangerous colleges in America. And I really think those lists are, are rather misleading because there are so many variables, such as campus size, location, number of students, campus culture, uh, for the comparisons to be fair or accurate. Uh, and so... I really think it's better to ask some several, you know, open-ended questions to determine if the campus is safe and if the culture is really right for you. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to many of those questions here in our first segment. And parents, I hope that you're taking notes. And even if there are college students listening or prospective college students listening, uh, these are things that you need to be aware of as well. And we'll talk about, Robin, how parents uh, can have these conversations with their students before they go off to school and as as you suggested, being proactive is always a good thing rather than waiting until something happens, uh, being well-informed in advance, knowing what the resources are, who to go to, and kind of what the risks are so we can take precautions. So where should parents really begin when trying to determine how safe a campus is? If, if it's not really the best approach to look at these rankings and they're really kind of taking information out of context perhaps, where should they begin? Well, you know, 
first of all, you know, I think crime stats are really important. They they have limited effect on, on how you can actually determine a, a campus's safety profile. But, you know, crime stats are a good place to start. And um, uh, most college campuses um, put out um, annual security reports because they're required to by law. And those reports can usually be found on the campus's website uh, or on the, if the campus has a public safety or security department or police department, that department may have its own web page. And usually, usually the annual security report is on that page. Um, and even if you can't find it online, uh, ask the campus public safety department or police department for it, for it, and they should be able to provide it to you. Also, if um, you would rather go to the U.S. Department of Education, that has most or all of the United States colleges' um, annual security reports. And so that's a good way for you to compare uh, crime stats from one college to the next. Um, some schools also conduct campus climate surveys and uh, perception of safety surveys. And so you can ask to see those results, too. And that can give you good information uh, and give you a good idea if students feel safe. Um, it might also provide a glimpse into the campus culture and safety profile. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, th this is a really good start. Um, there are a lot more in-depth questions that parents and students need to ask, however. So, but, you know, getting crime stats and, and other reports is a good start. Mm -hmm. And because they're required to have them available and published by law, if it's hard to find or buried really deep on the website or you experience resistance when you call and request it, that's probably not a good sign. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. So when we have the data, what kinds of things should we consider uh, when evaluating those crime statistics? Uh, when, when my children, I have twins, Robin, and, and they're recent college graduates, and my daughter's getting ready to go off to graduate school now in the fall. And um, when, when they were still in high school and applying to colleges, I took them on a little mini college tour to my alma mater, and I took them to a, a very large uh, urban uh, campus and my alma mater is a very small kind of self-contained uh, campus and I just wanted to give them two extremes that they could see kind of what the features are of different colleges and the one kind of sprawling urban city uh, downtown campus um, was really interesting <laughs> uh, because you've got people who are just living life all around you intermingled with college students and college buildings intermingled with just regular city buildings so how do we really evaluate data when some campuses are right smack dab in the middle of a city and some are kind of uh, secluded in their own, you know, up on a hill in their own little uh, village? Well, you know, uh, you know, crime data really has to make sense as far as where that crime data is taken from. So, for instance, you know, if you're applying to a, a school with 50,000 students and let's say only three sexual assaults were reported last year, you know, that's... I, I would call into question that statistic because we know from studies that approximately 23% of um, college students, female college students, will be the victim of a, an assault, a sexual assault, or an attempted sexual assault at some point during her college career. So, you know, three out of 50,000 students, that's, I think, I, I did the math, it's like 0.0006%. You know, that's not 23%. So. Yeah. You know, I would question, you know, how how well this campus is really um, collecting its crime data. You know, and, and you mentioned something about urban campuses. You know, if you're in, in an urban environment, 
and especially it maybe it's in an, in, in an area that maybe is, has a higher crime rate, you know, if the campus only reported two thefts for the entire year last year, you know, that might call into question how, how well they're doing, how good a job they're doing at, at reporting crime. And low numbers, low, low crime numbers actually might mean that campus top administrators are in denial or are sweeping their security issues under the rug. And if so, they probably aren't addressing their, their problems. And that puts in students at, at, in, in greater danger, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that <clears throat> higher rates of reported crime actually might mean that a school is dedicated to transparency and is working hard to make students aware of the risks so that they will take the necessary steps to take care of themselves and protect themselves. You know, urban campuses with high crime rates actually might be safer because they are realistically dealing with their security issues uh, compared to like a small rural campus that thinks that nothing happens here. Yeah. You know, uh, and another question I think to ask is, you know, how long does it take for, um, you know, crimes to be investigated and specifically uh, sexual misconduct uh, claims to be investigated? You know, if it's taking six months, it means that probably their Title IX office or the campus police department, you know, they probably don't have the support and resources they need to do their jobs effectively, and that would be a red flag for me. Yeah. Wow, what an what a um, insightful perspective that just because the numbers are high doesn't necessarily mean it's more dangerous. It may mean they're doing a better job of uh, teaching students and faculty the importance of reporting crimes rather than being the victim of a crime and not letting anyone know and suffering in silence. It's kind of counterintuitive, but, you know, that's kind of my my take on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and I think our parents listening will appreciate that that as well. Uh, So you mentioned a couple ways we can determine if safety and security are a top priority at a particular institution. If they're actually foreseeing that students are reporting crimes, probably means they're taking it seriously. Uh, What are some other ways uh, from the data we can determine if uh, safety and security is important and a priority? Well, this this question isn't so much about data. It's about um, who the top security executive reports to. It's a really good sign if they report to the, the college president, um, and that because that means they have the college president's ear, mm-hmm. and they're most likely, or hopefully, they're sitting in on high-level meetings. Because um, you know, a campus really needs to have a culture of safety and security, and that culture generally comes from the top, which is the college president. Another thing to look for is if the uh, top uh, security executive has the title of vice president. Uh, that, that's an even better sign. It's not really a very good sign if the top cop reports to somebody like the facilities manager or the bookstore manager <laughs> or food service, because that's an indication that they're really far down on the food chain and they really don't have the president's ear. Um, another thing to look for is, you know, does the president and other top administrators uh, participate in emergency drills and full-scale emergency exercises? Because if they do, that means that the president as well as the uh, other top administrators and executives have probably seen firsthand what's going on, um, and they're more likely to address safety and security issues that they actually know about. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Well, listeners, uh, my guest today is Robin Hattersley, executive editor of Campus Safety Magazine, and she's written a an ebook on um, uh, parents keeping their children safe at college. Uh, you can check all of that out at Campus safetymagazine.com. 
Uh, so, Robin, talk about uh, something called the Cleary Act. That's really a big deal on college campuses when it comes to law enforcement. Yes, it is. And uh, a lot of people in the public may not have heard of it, but it's a federal consumer protection law that requires all U.S. institutions of higher education that receive financial aid uh, to record and disclose crime on and around their campuses. And so, you know, this law applies to most college campuses because most college campuses in America uh, uh, participate in financial aid programs. Um, Colleges are required to report incidents of things like homicide, rape, assault, sexual assault, fires, burglaries, thefts, arson, hate crimes, dating and domestic violence, stalking, weapons laws violations, and uh, drug and liquor law violations. And all this data must be included in a report that uh, has to be made available to the public. And this is the annual security report that I talked about earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. So, so when looking at the data, what crimes are, are most commonplace on a college campus and, and what uh, crimes are college students most likely to be the victim of? Well, the most commonly reported usually are theft and larceny and auto theft. Uh, but, you know, we know from studies that sexual assault is really common. Like I said before, you know, 23% of college um, women will be raped or experience an attempted rape at some point during their college career. Um, dating, dating violence is extremely uh, prevalent. Um, one study found that 29% of college women say they have experienced um, abusive uh, uh, abuse uh, in their dating experiences. Hazing is very common. Uh, alcohol and drug abuse um, are, are very common as well. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into each of those in, in a little more detail in a moment. Uh, but let's first look at a broader context that addresses, especially in particular, sexual violence, um, among other things. Uh, talk about Title IX. Um, some of us may have heard of Title IX in the context of uh, gender equity with um, college athletics. But what's the relevance for sexual violence? Well, you know, Title IX also applies to sexual violence and sexual harassment. And the Obama administration uh, focused a lot on sexual violence, on the sexual violence component of Title IX. And the, the move was applauded by a lot of victim advocates. However, there are several cases currently pending in the courts right now where um, students accused of sexual assault say they were treated unfairly by their schools. So we really don't know how those cases are going to pan out. Generally, however, the courts have ruled in favor of the victims. Uh, but, you know, Title IX is, is, is an evolving uh, law right now. Um, also, we have a brand new um, uh, presidential administration. The Trump administration has signaled that they, m- there might be some changes made to how the U.S. Department of Education enforces Title IX. But, you know, as the law currently stands, colleges as well as K-12 schools, by the way, um, they must conduct their own administrative investigations of sexual assault claims, um, whether or not the victim reports the case to law enforcement. And if a student is found responsible for sexual assault, he or she can be suspended, expelled, or subject to some other discipline. Um, you know, Title IX is a really complicated subject, and we could really go down this <laughs> rabbit hole really yeah. quickly. <laughs> and it, it would take us years to, to cover, and uh, the nu- nuances are, are amazing. But, um, you know, that gives you a, a, a little bit of an idea of what it's about. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if, if I, I would argue that a parent's top priority, especially when sending their 
child off to a school out of town, out of state, is definitely their safety. Of course, we want them to get a great education and to graduate in in four years or even less. Uh, (laughs) But I would argue that our, our top priority is to know our children are safe. And so as we're evaluating the data and looking at some of these factors that that you're sharing and uh, informing us about, um, it sounds like one of the things that might signal that your child is at a safe campus and even an, an equitable campus would be to see if there is a, a Title IX investigator or a Title IX um, uh, department, so to speak, where that's what they do is, is um, focus on uh, making sure that there's no violations and if there are reports that they're investigated properly. Oh, absolutely, and that's actually required by law. You know, so if they're not doing that, they're not following the law. Okay. That's something that's really important to know. Mm-hmm. And so these are not easy investigations, are they? They may take um, weeks, months, maybe even up to a whole semester. Uh, so, again, making sure that at your child's uh, campus, while it's required by law, what kind of resources do, do they have uh, to, to support students when there is an investigation? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you know, those resources... I'm a big believer in training, Um, you know, most because freshman women are the most vulnerable to being sexually assaulted during the first six weeks of school. Mm. um, Training on sexual violence prevention and response should probably happen right at the beginning of the semester and perhaps even before. Mm -hmm. Well, well, what outstanding advice. There's been so much attention, rightfully so, uh, put on the problem of sexual assault and um, energy put into sexual assault prevention and education. And with those statistics uh, that you cited, especially pertaining to young women, of course we know that um, young men can be uh, sexually assaulted as well or be the victims of dating violence or stalking. Uh, it, but in particular, uh, young women are, are ex- extremely vulnerable at the beginning of the semester when they're trying to make friends, trying to connect, um, yeah. going to social events, not really knowing people very well. Um, they're very vulnerable, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why, you know, we need to get them right at the beginning of the semester, if, if not before. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I think is really important, you know, with, with this train, though, is campuses need to discuss the relationship between alcohol, mm-hmm. drug use, and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. But it has to really, really be done carefully in a non-judgmental way, and it needs to be done by professionals. Um, and, and, and they need to learn, you know, how to cover, uh, how to uh, report an assault and who to report it to. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk in our next segment more about uh, alcohol and drug abuse uh, and use uh, for parents to increase their awareness and have those conversations with their child before they go to school. But I think you raise such an important point because um, that correlation between um, drinking alcohol and intoxication for the perpetrator and the victim uh, is an important connection. And we might uh, find college students away from home for the first time. This might be the first time that they uh, try alcohol, and they may not know their limits. They may not realize just how little it takes to get them intoxicated and not to be able to give consent. So definitely, as you're saying, education around sexual assault prevention absolutely needs to include uh, information on drug and al- alcohol use. Absolutely. And, you know, and the programs also uh, need to really encourage the reporting of assaults and encourage victim, victims to get medical help and counseling. Um, uh, and, and sexual violence prevention and awareness training should also address things like cultural norms that may be 
overtly or covertly support acquaintance rape and other forms of, of sexual violence that are usually, you know, perpetrated against women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's about alcohol education. And it's not only uh, about about for girls, but it's also for boys mm-hmm. or for men. Yeah, and we always focus on what victims can do to reduce their risk, uh, but we also need to be talking uh, very regularly and very early on with our boys and young men about how not to become a perpetrator. Exactly. And also, you know, that's also where bystander intervention training comes in. Um, and for those of you who don't know what bystander intervention training is, it's it teaches students how to non-violently intervene when they observe a situation where sexual sexual violence can occur. Mm-hmm. And Robin, and let me I'll... let me let you hold that until after our break. Um, oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so we can go into more depth with this. I think bystander intervention is such an important uh, place to put some attention in um, sexual assault prevention and awareness education on college campuses. My guest is Robin Hattersley, executive editor of Campus Safety Magazine. We'll be right back. This is Denver's all-new 94.7 FM, The Word. One needs to look no further than today's headlines to understand the threats facing American schools. They remain soft targets for violent threats, and yet our schools go largely underprepared. Our children deserve the highest level of education in the safest learning environment possible. The SSI Guardian QAL, or Quick Action Lockdown, is the fastest and safest way to lock down a classroom. This revolutionary device provides schools with maximum locking protection while meeting all safety, fire, and building codes. Designed by the leading lock experts in the world, the QAL is the only lock that meets Department of Homeland Security primer recommendations. SSI Guardian QAL now makes classroom lockdowns fast and safe with the red button. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the best classroom protection. Take action today by calling SSI Guardian at 877-878-5800 or go to guardianprotect.com. That's guardianprotect.com. With SRN News, I'm Ron DeRockstrup. President Trump's heading to Pennsylvania today to mark his 100th day in office, and he's expected to sign an executive order directing his administration to conduct a study of U.S. trade agreements. Later, there's a rally planned in Harrisburg, the state capital. Pope Francis wrapping up a brief but deeply symbolic visit to Egypt with an open-air mass for the country's tiny Catholic community, defying security concerns to show his support for the Christians of this Muslim-majority Arab nation. And even before the European Union and Britain kick off their divorce negotiations, there's already a fight between the two that could affect the talks. EU Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker says Britain currently blocks the decision-making on a review of the EU's long-term budget, and he says he sees a link of that with the upcoming talks. This is SRN News. 94.7 FM, The Word. Hi, this is Willie Dan with Stanford Funding. Rates remain extremely low. Right now, you can get 15-year rates in the low threes and 20-year rates in the upper threes. Whether you're looking to refinance or purchase a new home, call Stanford Funding now at 303-458-8200. These rates won't last long, as the Federal Reserve is expected to start raising rates soon as the economy keeps improving. So call your local lender, Stanford Funding, at 303-458-8200. Even have rates in the mid-threes for FHA and VA loans 
for both purchases and refinances. VA loans can even go to 100% of the value of the home, whether it's a purchase or cash out. Lastly, Stanford Funding can even finance commercial properties or those hard-to-do loans that banks won't touch. So call Stanford Funding now at 303-458-8200 or apply online at stanfordfunding.com. NMLS 306720. Credit score 660. Loan to value 90%. Licensed by the Division of Real Estate. You've been thinking about getting your concealed handgun permit for a while now. Security and peace of mind, self-defense, and home protection, all valid reasons for your concealed handgun permit. You don't need to delay it any longer. Now's the time. DCF Guns in Castle Rock has a concealed carry weapons class. It has a $200 value, but for a limited time, you can get it for just $100 only at DenverHalfPrice.com. That's DenverHalfPrice.com. This class is intended for new and experienced shooters looking to apply for a concealed handgun permit class exceeds the state of Colorado requirements to apply for your concealed permit, this course by DCF Guns in Castle Rock teaches the basic knowledge, skills, and attitude for owning and using a pistol safely. That's a $200 certificate for a concealed carry weapons class for just $100 from DCF Guns and only available at DenverHalfPrice.com. That's DenverHalfPrice.com. That's DenverHalfPrice.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Welcome back, everyone. My guest is Robin Hattersley, executive editor of Campus Safety Magazine and author of the ebook Parents' Guide to Keeping Your Child Safe at College. And Robin, can you let listeners know again how they can reach you? Uh, well, I'm available at CampusSafetyMagazine.com, and my email is rhattersley at chpub.com. Excellent. And uh, listeners, you can check out lots of articles and blogs and free webinars on CampusSafetyMagazine.com. Uh, so let's finish talking about bystander intervention uh, training around sexual assault. And if you can describe, again, what that is, you started talking about it before the break, and maybe give an example of the kinds of scenarios where bystander intervention could make all the difference between someone becoming victimized and someone going home safe that night. Right. Well, it it basically teaches boys and girls, or men and women, uh, how to nonviolently intervene when they see a situation where somebody might be sexually assaulted. And a good example is, let's say, you know, at a fraternity party, uh, a woman's friend sees that she's being led up, led by a guy upstairs to a room. And if the woman is drunk, she's unable to, cons- to consent to sexual intercourse. And bystander intervention training teaches her friends, both male and female, how to identify what is happening to her and how to intervene in an appropriate and safe way so she won't be sexually assaulted. And um, a study has just come out that has found that uh, this type of intervention really works. Mm, That's good news. And again, we can also train um, uh, the friends of a potential perpetrator uh, when we see certain signs, someone um, seeming to be um, encouraging someone else to drink heavily and taking them off by themselves. Or even, you know, we've seen the horrific stories of um, of um, multiple perpetrators with one victim, and they're standing by watching uh, someone being raped. Uh, so that would be an, an an opportunity as a bystander 
um, to intervene as well. And I think it's important where you're stressing nonviolently. So you can certainly call uh, law enforcement rather than, you know, physically um, getting yourself into an altercation. Now, let's talk about as a result of reading your ebook, uh, Parents Guide to Keeping Your Child Safe at College, parents are going to have a lot of good information. And at the end of each chapter, you have um, questions and topics that you incur- encourage parents to discuss with their children prior to them uh, e- either selecting a college or university or um, matriculating or returning to a campus that they've been attending. What kinds of things should parents be t- talking about with their children now and, and going forward? Well, you know, when we're talking about sex and sexual <laughs> violence and drugs and alcohol, I mean, they're really tough <laughs> subjects to talk about. And, and you know, I'm not a psychologist. I know you are, so you can probably give as, as good advice as I can. But, you know, you really, you might want to consult with a child psychologist or marriage and family counselor uh, to help you broach the subject. Um, I think it's really important to not be judgmental or freaked out. Um, and like I said before, it's important to talk to both boys and girls about this. Because let's face it, college men are usually the perpetrators of sexual assault, and they they need guidance on what is and is not acceptable behavior. So, you know, you need to discuss with your child the facts about sexual violence on college campus in in a non-fear-based way and talk about the role that alcohol and drugs play in sexual violence. Um, It's really important to not come across as though you're blaming the victims um, who are under the influence of alcohol or drugs when they're attacked, because this can really discourage your kid from telling you about their own victimization because they're afraid that they're scared you'll judge them or or criticize them. Um, It's really important to discuss and model for your child, you know, a healthy relationship. Discuss with them, you know, what a healthy breakup looks like. Um, You know, we talked a lot of times about healthy relationships, but what does a healthy breakup actually look like? Yeah. You know, I, nobody, nobody told me that. <laughs> and, and I don't, I, we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Um, that, that's a great one because uh, dating violence and just um, kind of, in, uh, kind of that um, where your first love um, and how that affects your self concept and self esteem. And as you said, especially in a breakup, how do you move forward and, learn how to cope with your emotions without plummeting into a depression. Exactly. And also, you know, the breakup is, is a time when a lot of times dating dating violence either, you know, rears its ugly head or, or escalates. So, you know, that's something that's really important. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's important to, to model appropriate relationship boundaries. What do boundary violations look like and feel like? Um, like I said before, I'm not a psychologist, but I do know that many of the women and men coming onto our college campuses have already been victimized in their families or in their communities where they come from, and some have learned to act out, you know, unacceptable behavior or to accept unacceptable behavior. And so hopefully, you know, our listeners have been teaching their kids all along how to respect everyone, including, you know, members of the opposite sex, members of the LGBTQ community, uh, people of different races, religious backgrounds. And also, you know, it's really important uh, to teach them self-respect. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, the list goes on and on, Robin, and it seems like uh, these are things we should be, as parents, uh, talking with our children about throughout their development 
and just uh, kind of the pressure is on when you realize you're running out of time. You're about, you know, your yeah. little birdie's about to fly the nest. And um, so trying to make sure that we uh, address as many topics as possible. And that's why your parent's guide to keeping your child safe at, coll- at college is such a wonderful resource because it gives us ideas and and prompts us of things and topics to talk about and also provides some helpful uh, resources. Uh, going off to college, uh, you're going to encounter, as you said, people who are different from you. And so you're being exposed to different values and different behaviors. And so really getting your, your child rooted and grounded in in uh, your the values that your family holds important so that they can uh, use that kind of as an anchor as they're exposed to so many different ideas and people and behaviors. Uh, another thing that would come to mind is even just how to resolve conflict. Uh, they may be having a roommate for the very first time if they've been, had their own room or been an only child, and now they've got to share this uh, small space. So, again, parents, you'll find some great uh, information and resources in Robin Hattersley's guide, Parents' Guide to Keeping Your Child Safe at College. Now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about um, how parents um, can evaluate um, um, appropriate uh, resources that are available on campus, services that are there for for their student, Uh, especially a student who may have a pre-existing mental health concern. I know when I um, um, took my son to college uh, when he was starting his freshman year, not only did they have a student orientation, new student student orientation, but they had a parent orientation, which I found really helpful. And they had uh, an open house or kind of like a uh, department fair where representatives from all the different uh, student services and student affairs offices were available to ask questions. And one, of course, for me that stood out being a psychologist myself was the um, College Counseling Center. And I was able to meet the director of the counseling center at the uh, orientation to ask uh, the kinds of questions that you're talking about now in terms of uh, what resources are available, what services are available uh, for a student who may have um, uh, mental health concerns going in or, as you mentioned, maybe as a result of a breakup, maybe they become depressed. Uh, What other kinds of things would be important to, to inquire about or be aware of in terms of mental health and support services on campus? Well, you know, there's probably should be counselors on campus, and and probably the larger larger institutions have those on campus already. But if they don't have counselors on campus, um, the campus should have relationships and agreements with off-campus counseling services. And the same applies to uh, victim advocates. Uh, They should be both on campus, but they should also have uh, good working relationships with off-campus victim advocates because a lot of times when a student is you know, the victim of a crime, they might actually turn to these off-campus resources first. And so, you know, both the victim advocates on campus and off-campus really need to partner and work together. Um, You know, the thing that I think is important to remember is that um, a lot of times the the onset of mental health conditions uh, come about between the ages of 17 and 24, which is the age of most college students, let's face it. So, you know, a freshman might come onto campus without any mental health issue, but develop them in his sophomore, junior, or senior year, or maybe, like you said, they go through a really bad breakup and, and, it's, and they really have a hard time with it. Um, about one in 10 college students is receiving counseling from on-campus mental health professionals. 
And also, you know, it's really important to remember that a significant portion of incidents involve perpetrators or victims or both with drug or alcohol issues and behavioral health issues. So, you know, it's really important to have on-campus on counseling. Um, and parents really need to work with their children um, and, and talk to campus administrators on how the school can best support the student, you know, especially if the student has, um, you know, has a diagnosis of, of depression or anxiety, you know, and so how uh, can they best support the student's trans transition to college so that they'll continue to receive the treatment or medication they need. And the same approach applies if your child has autism spectrum disorder or ADHD or some other diagnosis. Wow. Yeah, so many things to, to be concerned about and even equip and prepare our students before they leave home to kind of know um, here, here are some of the signs that you may need extra support or you may be tempted to stop your medication, but, um, you know, it's important for you to continue and uh, where to go to get that support when needed. Um, let's... And that also mm -hmm. applies, applies to, you know, like if, if they have pre-existing alcohol or substance abuse issues, you know, are, are there 12-step meetings in, in the area so they can maintain their sobriety, things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, so important. Well, um, we're going to uh, take a break in just a moment. And um, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, what's known as threat assessment teams and behavioral intervention teams because it kind of brings everything together that we've been talking about. Uh, if, uh, if a student has been the victim of a crime or a sexual assault or is involved in uh, dating violence and, or a stalking incident, uh, if a student has an alcohol or drug uh, uh, problem, or um, a pre-existing mental health diagnosis, uh, there's um, a behavioral intervention team, um, or in some cases a threat assessment team that may be activated uh, to assist the student and to keep that student and the rest of the community safe. Uh, so this is a really important topic that we'll delve into um, when we return from the break. Uh, my guest is Robin Hattersley, executive editor of Campus Safety Magazine and author of the ebook Parents' Guide to Keeping Your Child Safe at College. Uh, when we come back, we'll hear more from Robin. Don't go away. This is Denver's all-new 94.7 FM, The Word. Schools can no longer afford not to invest in a professional, evidence-based, advanced safety education training program. It's the single most important decision and investment a school administrator will ever make in their professional career. When all else fails, training and preparation are the only things that will increase your chances of survival in a violent incident such as an active shooter or active terrorism. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based, advanced training programs tailored to your needs. While there are many basic training programs largely based on opinion and emotion, SSI Guardian is the only advanced training program of its type with an accredited continuing education unit or CEU issued by an accredited university. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training and solutions to learning institutions, faith-based and professional organizations. To learn more, call SSI Guardian today at 877-878-5800 or visit guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Pegg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark.
Welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Again, if you need support with your change and transformation goals, check out my book, Do Something Different for a Change. Or if you've got a graduate in your life from high school or college, make sure that you check out a copy of my Do Something Different for a Change or Doggy Tales books. And you can also register now for my June 17th personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com for more information. Well, thanks so much, Robin Hattersley, for spending the time with me today and my listeners. Uh, This has just been a really informative conversation. Thank you. And Robin Hattersley is executive editor of Campus Safety Magazine, and you can go to campussafetymagazine.com to reach out to to Robin and to um, read the different articles and blogs and free webinars that are available. And Robin, can you share with listeners how they can purchase a copy of Parent's Guide to Keeping Your Child Safe at College? Yes, it is available at campussafetymagazine.com, all one word. Excellent. And it's on the homepage. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Um, it's just a really, uh, it's it's not a, a long read, but it, it's a, it requires a thorough read. Uh, and you give uh, parents um, ideas and prompts for questions and topics uh, to have a conversation uh, with their child before they leave for college. Uh, even if they're returning to their same campus, it's not too late to have these conversations, and you've got plenty of resources available in the ebook. So let's talk about uh, threat assessment and threat assessment teams. On some campuses, they're called behavioral intervention teams. And in my opinion, this is one of the most important uh, developments and processes and um, uh, teams and interventions uh, that can be in place on a college campus. And I always say, um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but in all seriousness, uh, having a mental illness as a college student uh, is probably the best time and place (laughs) to have your first um, um, uh, mental health um, uh, crisis. There's probably nowhere else you're going to have better trained people who are there to support you and to um, provide case management and intervention and make sure you're safe and the community is safe. Uh, It's so much easier to fall through the cracks just out in the community, and you're much more likely uh, to get the help you need if you're on a college campus. So talk about uh, threat assessment and threat assessment teams and behavioral intervention teams, Robin. Well, it's really important that a college has these teams uh, in place. Um, Team members usually include folks from like law enforcement, mental health, legal counsel, residence life, student affairs, and top administration. And they basically assess behavior that is threatening, dangerous, or disruptive. And that behavior might be, you know, a threat to commit a campus shooting or take their own life or some other type of behavior that threatens the health and well-being of others or of the person making the threat. And, you know, a good example is, you know, a student who is telling her friends she wants to take her home, her own life. Well, she can, people can step in and um, refer her to campus or local behavioral health professionals or substance abuse recovery programs to address her depression and other symptoms. And so that, you know, she comes out of her depression. Um, And I bring up this point about her telling her friends because, with a lot of campus incidents, the person wanting to, like, you know, take their own life or wanting to commit a mass shooting, like, often exhibit signs or even tell someone that they're going to act out before they carry out, carry out their plan. And very often, the people they tell are their friends or their roommates, like you mentioned before, their roommates. And sometimes they might, you know, write about it online or in a term paper. And so, as a result, you know, not only should a campus have these types of threat assessment teams, they also need to educate students, 
faculty, staff, and even visitors how to report individuals, you know, such as classmates, roommates, students in the case of teachers, coworkers, customers, vendors, and other people who might be exhibiting concerning behavior. Mm-hmm. So this is another example of where bystander intervention really is important, not just as you've talked about already in the context of uh, sexual assault uh, prevention, but certainly um, any kind of, um, as you said, threatening, dangerous, or disruptive behavior, it's very likely that what's called leakage is going to occur, that someone's going to show signs that they're either um, escalating on a path to violence and, and planning to commit a violent act, or they may show signs that they are depressed or, and suicidal, um, or their behavior just might be disruptive and hasn't yet uh, progressed to something dangerous and may never, but that bystanders can play a really critically important role um, in educating the college campus on making appropriate reports to the behavioral intervention team. And uh, I serve on uh, the behavioral intervention team at Community College of Aurora in Colorado, and I actually, I think I'd argue that there really is no inappropriate report to the behavioral intervention team because if it can be handled by a different department, the behavioral intervention team can make that referral. And so really the team serves as that central place where um, all the pieces of the puzzle can be assembled, where people know they can they can share if they're concerned about someone or even someone is concerned about themselves and thoughts that they're having. They can make that report to one central location uh, with a well-trained team who knows how to intervene, how to, how to um, evaluate or assess a threat, and how to take appropriate action. And Peggy, I just want to break in here quickly. You know, one thing I think a lot of times students in particular uh, are hesitant to report because they think they're snitching, they're mm-hmm. telling on their friends. And, and, and the point of this, these behavioral health or, or threat assessment teams is not to get these people in trouble. It's to get them help mm-hmm. for the most part. It, and it might be they maybe law enforcement needs to be involved, but they might just need, you know, resources, you know, psychological resources. Mm-hmm. And the feedback we get from students when reports are made, and sometimes someone's concerned and it turns out to be unfounded. The student's not suicidal. They're actually okay. And sometimes they think they're in trouble. But I'd say the majority of time, the vast majority of time, in my experience, the student is actually grateful. Wow, someone cared. Um, someone um, someone was paying attention. And uh, wow, the, the uh, college has resources and people who care about me and want to see me succeed, uh, not just academically, but personally. So I think uh, you really can't go wrong with making that report. It's it's the rare occasion where someone is really really upset that uh, that people care enough to reach out. So uh, Robin, let's talk about um, active shooter response education and training on college campuses today. Uh, you mentioned that as a possible application of when a threat assessment team might get activated. Um, how important is that today on college campuses, and for parents to know a little bit more about that? Well, you know, there's been a lot of focus on active shooters lately, and, and for really good reason. These are really disturbing events. I, I mean, I'm not invalidating anybody's concerns about them at all. But I think it's really important to remember that the chances of a student, or of anyone for that matter, being killed by an active shooter is really small. Um, they're much more likely to actually be struck by lightning. So, um, but, but despite that, you know, um, more campuses are conducting active shooter drills and full-scale exercises. So I believe they're much better prepared than ever before uh, for these types of attacks. But it's also really important for students to know how to respond 
in the event that something like this happens. Um, and most colleges have embraced some form of the run-hide-fight approach. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's, it's basically it's to it's an effective way to respond to the active shooters, but also to some other events, such as you know someone with a knife, perhaps um, someone. Uh, who's just acting out um, in a disruptive way that where you don't really know, you know, what's what's happening. But the whole concept of run, hide, fight is run is where students, faculty, and staff and visitors uh, evacuate to a safe location. Hide means that they should get behind a locked or barricaded door, shelter in a protected area, be quiet, and wait for law enforcement to arrive. And fight is really the last resort where students, faculty, staff, and visitors should engage the shooter or attacker, I should say, and take him or her out. Uh, my preference is for students to use hide as the first option because especially if you're in a location that can be secured or barricaded, with active shooters, it's difficult to know what's going on and where the shooter or multiple shooters in, in some cases you know, are located. So if you evacuate, you might actually run into more danger than if you stay put. And so that's why I'm a big fan of things like, you know, lockdown and shelter in place. And my second option would be to evacuate or run. And my last option would be to fight back. Um, I'm not a big fan of students, faculty, or staff carrying guns. Um, this is a really controversial topic. And I know that there's some people out there who are all in favor of concealed carry on campus. Um, campus safety magazines, readers, however, for the most part are opposed to it. And, and I won't go into all the details as to why. And, we, and we're not going to have time to get too in-depth. Yeah. we get to a whole other show. Let me interject here, Robin, in terms of the, our topic today. Um, it, it would be important for parents to know what kinds of training has occurred and is occurring on a regular basis on their child's campus. And also, what's the appropriate um, response and communication with children following a campus incident? Is there going to be a... Um, an, a notification sent out through the traditional means. Where's the reunification location? Um, how can you reach your child if there's a lockdown? So it would be important for parents to know, I think, that information before something were to occur. We only have a minute left, Robin, and I thank you so much um, for all the information you've shared. But tell the listeners really quickly how they can learn more about the Campus Safety Conference that's coming up in Texas, Philadelphia, and Long Beach, California. Well, we're having... Three, as you mentioned, um, and it's generally for police chiefs, security directors, campus administrators, officers, emergency managers, risk managers, technology professionals, and safety team members. Anyone who is responsible for the safety and security of K through 12 schools, school districts, or institutions of higher education. And I know that you, Peggy, will be one of our featured featured speakers at all three of the events. And uh, like you said before, you'll be covering threat assessment, mental health, and behavioral intervention teams. We're also going to be talking about the impact of the Sandy Hook Elementary School and Virginia Tech mass shootings on campus security um, and emergency management. And we have a whole bunch of other um, speakers lined up. Great. It's a really great lineup. So I encourage everyone to um, in, in our audience who's responsible. Thank, thank you, Robin. I'm sorry. Safety. We're oh. going to have to cut you off right there. Go to CampusSafetyMagazine.com uh, or DrPegRadio.com. I'm Peggy Mitchell-Clark reminding you to live well. Thanks so much, Robin Hattersley. Thank you, Peggy. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, brought to you every week by SSI Guardian. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat, visit drpegradio.com. You can also purchase Dr. Peg's books, Do Something Different for a Change, and Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog, online at drpegradio.com. And remember to join us every Saturday at 1 p.m. on 94.7 The Word FM for Living Well with Dr. Peg. Peg.